more U.S. troops in Taiwan. That's as the island continues to face an ever more aggressive communist neighbor. The U.S. planning on increasing the number of troops from the current 30 up to 200. Taiwan's president welcoming the move. China, meanwhile, accusing the U.S. of undermining peace and stability in the region. The Pentagon maintaining the move would help Taiwan defend itself in the event of a Chinese invasion. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Before we turn to today's news, we'd like to take a moment to answer a question sent in by our viewers. They said they've seen advertisements appear on our YouTube channel, suggesting our channel is not demonetized, as we say in our program. But looking at our YouTube data, no income is made by China in Focus on YouTube. Although YouTube has placed advertisements on our channel from time to time, we have not benefited from them. Despite these challenges, we are devoted to bringing truthful and comprehensive news about China to our audience. If you'd like to support us, subscribe to our partner platform, Epoch TV, where you can watch our full episodes. To sign up, click the link down below or consider donating. Find us at donorbox.org slash China dash in dash focus or just follow the link in the description box down below. The U.S. is planning to boost the number of American troops training Taiwanese forces on the island. That's according to U.S. officials. The move will launch in the coming months and will see troop numbers jump fourfold from the current 30 up to 200. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen touched on the island's military cooperations with Washington earlier this week when she received a U.S. congressional delegation. In addition to security issues, Taiwan and the United States continue to bolster military exchanges. In recent months, the U.S. has strengthened its position around Taiwan, bolstering forces at nearby U.S. naval bases in Japan and Guam. Even a modest increase in the number of troops in Taiwan could ramp up tensions with China. A small number of U.S. Special Operations Forces have been rotating into Taiwan. They are stationed there on a temporary basis to train the island's forces. Here's what Taiwan's president had to say about it in a 2021 interview with CNN. Yes, um, we have uh, a wide range of cooperation with the U.S. Uh, uh, aiming at uh, uh, increasing our defense capability. The Pentagon declined to comment on the troop expansion, but said U.S. support for Taiwan remains aligned against the current threat posed by the People's Republic of China. Communist China is calling for peace over the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but the West doesn't seem to be buying its proposal. NTD's Sam Wang has more. On the one-year anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine war, China released a 12-point position paper calling for a peace settlement between the two nations. The document also pushes to end all Western sanctions on Russia, but China's failure to condemn Moscow's invasion has raised doubts. According to NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, China's support for Russia has discredited the country as a peace broker. China uh, doesn't have much credibility because uh, they have not been able to condemn uh, the illegal invasion of uh, Ukraine. Uh, and they also signed just days before the invasion uh, an agreement between President Xi and President Putin uh, uh, on uh, limitless uh, partnership with Russia. The head of the European Union voiced a similar concern. You have to see them against a specific backdrop. 
And that is the backdrop that China has taken side by signing, for example, an unlimited friendship uh, right before the invasion, Russia's invasion in Ukraine started. Kyiv called the proposal a good sign, but urged China to take it further. Ukrainian President Zelensky now plans to meet Xi Jinping for peace talks. On the other hand, Washington doesn't appear on board with China's proposal. Instead, the U.S. is expected to announce new sanctions against Moscow. Those penalties will also target certain third-party companies, including some Chinese businesses. That's for supplying Russia's military. The Biden administration says it's concerned Beijing could choose to provide Russia with lethal aid. U.S. Undersecretary of State Victoria Nuland said this is not something that can be done under the carpet while China professes to be neutral. An update on the microchip front. Washington now primed to limit advanced chip production by South Korean companies located in China. Officials first brought up the possibility in October. That's when the world's top memory chip makers, South Korea Samsung and SK Hynix, received a one-year break from U.S. export restrictions. Those controls counter Beijing's tech ambitions and block its military advances. The Commerce Department's Undersecretary for Industry and Security said Washington would likely cap the levels that they can grow to in China. He added that the U.S. would work with them to ensure that we aren't going to harm our allies' companies, adding that at the same time, we are going to impede the Chinese capability of building capabilities that are going to threaten us collectively. Samsung and SK Hynix control about half of the global NAND flash memory chip market. Both are heavily invested in China and produce vital chips for tech giants like Apple and Amazon. As Washington limits the amount of chips made overseas, a $52 billion initiative will boost production here at home. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo spoke Thursday, saying the government will urge companies to build at least two advanced chip factories on U.S. soil. The centers would include a robust supplier ecosystem and employ thousands of union workers. Zooming in on the initiative, Congress approved a $52.7 billion for semiconductor manufacturing and research back in August. Lawmakers also cleared a 25% investment tax credit for chip plants, plus $39 billion in semiconductor chip subsidies. Those incentives to encourage companies to build new or expand U.S. facilities. Concerns about China sparked the move. Back to Raimondo, she explained that the U.S. leads in chip design but not manufacturing. To help, she explained the Commerce Department also planned to invest $11 billion in semiconductor research and development. South Korean giant Samsung runs a big presence in Texas and plans to expand with additional plans near Austin and Taylor, Texas. Taiwanese chipmaker TSMC broke ground on a new plant in Arizona late last year, while global giant Intel is building a chip factory in Ohio. A follow-up on a recent healthcare reform protest in China. While the voices of retirees defending their rights continue to ring out, a hardline crackdown is already in play. Here's what's happening. At least five were arrested for attending or supporting mass rallies in China's Wuhan this month. On February 8th and 15th, tens of thousands rallied in the city against heavy slashes to their health insurance benefits. Most attendees were retired seniors struggling to afford their medications. Locals say the arrests began the day of the second protest. Many were tracked down through facial recognition. Authorities forced them to sign a notice, stating that they knew the gathering would incur the penalty of detention. Such a paper would then legitimize the police clampdown. Among those in custody, a young man was detained on the spot for singing the international anthem. 
The song is sung by a number of communist and socialist countries and includes lyrics that urge the masses to rise, protest and fight. As for other protesters, a taxi driver was arrested upon returning home from a rally. Another was taken away for posting videos of a protest on social media. Despite the pressure of arrest, some still say they'll continue to speak out. What's wrong with me participating in the protest? I care about it because it concerns me. So why not? The CCP cut people's health insurance. Now you want to hold me accountable? A similar scene played out in Dalian, another city where mass protests broke out. Footage shows police violence dispersing elderly protesters, in some cases hitting or kicking them and even using pepper spray. These recent demonstrations have been dubbed the White Hair Movement. The name is a nod to China's landmark anti-lockdown protests late last year, known as the White Paper Movement. Over 100 white paper protesters ended up in jail. Celebrities who show solidarity also got ousted from Chinese social media. In Canada, the federal government is warning that a domestic bank could be tied to the Chinese regime. Canada's finance minister says the situation may pose national security concerns. Here's the latest. Canadian Finance Minister Christia Freeland reportedly wrote a letter to three founding shareholders of Wealth One Bank of Canada late last year. In it, she said the three founders could be susceptible to coercion by the Chinese regime. Wealth One is a bank based in Toronto catering to Chinese Canadians. It was founded in 2016. Two of the founders have property and investments in China. The Canadian Security Intelligence Service has been investigating the bank for national security reasons since 2021. Freeland also said in her letter that the Canadian government believes the three founders may have been involved in money laundering. She is giving them an opportunity to respond to the government's concerns. Wealth One said in a statement that the three shareholders are no longer directors of the bank and that none of their shareholders have ever had a role in the bank's operations. Artificial intelligence, possibly the most significant technology humankind ever develops. Next, let's dive into why America was first to put out an AI program like ChatGPT instead of China. Both superpowers have invested heavily in artificial intelligence, yet the U.S. remains slightly ahead. What are the differences in government policy, culture and history that have led to the gap? Here's a closer look. ChatGPT, by the way, is a computer program that can talk to, with people like a human would. People can type in virtually any question or command and ChatGPT will give intelligent, coherent, detailed responses. It's had a huge impact in many industries like customer service, healthcare, education, and e-commerce. So why was America first to put out this kind of program and not China? Like with all of our ChatGPT special reports, we were curious what ChatGPT would say. It said America has a long history of investing in AI research and development. America has many of the world's leading universities and research institutions. Even the American government has provided substantial funding for AI development. America also has a strong tech industry, which has attracted talented researchers and engineers from all around the world. And of course, America's regulatory environment is good for innovation. Now, in comparison, China's regulatory environment is a different story. There's far more state involvement in AI development. The Chinese regime has imposed a number of guidelines and regulations, some of which could actually hamper the industry. 
For example, the Chinese regime imposed restrictions on data access and sharing, especially for foreign companies. And this is counterintuitive because AI needs data to develop. China is also less transparent about its AI research and development. It's very different from the more open approach used to create ChatGPT. The creator of ChatGPT is literally called OpenAI. We spoke to AI researcher Alexander de Ritter. He says this is a key reason that ChatGPT has been so successful. So OpenAI um, released uh, early access to their models to engineers, developers who then started using it and started giving OpenAI massive amount of information on how to make that model better. It gives researchers access to peer insights so they don't have to solve the same problem twice. And it brings more data and adoption to the market, which is key to improving those models. As an AI researcher, De Ritter is constantly reading AI research papers, including those from China. He says China has had a, a tremendous surge in the quantity of AI research, but that's not all it needs. So China showing that it can do the same thing, but better. Whereas papers from the West are oftentimes uh, interesting in a way that they are not so much caring about being better, but are trying completely radical things that may completely not work. And sometimes those are the exact ideas that are necessary to make massive improvements in the field in the future. And the fact that English is America's most common language is also important. We spoke with Abbas Moladina, the founder of AI firm Umaker. Moladina says AI language models like ChatGPT need to learn by looking at data sets. In this case, the data set is the internet. And what language is most of the internet in? Approximately 55 to 56% of the internet is written in English. Most of the websites in the world are English websites. And so for the underlying engine to learn, it needs a repository of information against which it can leverage and for there to be an, an, an input. While over 56% of the internet is in English, only 1.5% is in Chinese. So for an English-speaking program, this is clearly a head start. To make things worse, the Chinese regime has also heavily censored large parts of the internet. This, of course, further restricts the amount of data its language models can learn from. Meanwhile, Chinese tech giant Baidu will launch its own ChatGPT-style program very soon. It's called ErnieBot. Baidu says Ernie stands for Enhanced Representation Through Knowledge Integration. Baidu plans on integrating Ernie with all of its operations, starting with its internet search service. We can expect to meet Ernie sometime in March. Coming up, communist China calling for a ceasefire in the Russia-Ukraine war. What's behind Beijing's peace proposal? And how should the U.S. respond as China and Russia grow their ties? We sat down with John Sidalides, geopolitical strategist and diplomacy consultant to the State Department for more. Get his insight on the situation in just a minute here on China in Focus.
Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Calls for peace from a communist country. Is the free world falling behind when it comes to putting an end to Russia's war in Ukraine? And what does the China-Russia no-limits friendship mean for America? We sat down with John Sidalides, geopolitical strategist and diplomacy consultant to the State Department, for insight. John Sidalides, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So it seems right now with the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there is now talks by China that there's going to be, you know, a potential peace deal. That's what China's trying to do in terms of Russia and Ukraine. What do you make of that, especially with China maybe taking the lead here? It would not be surprised uh, overall if China were to look to play some type of a leadership diplomatic role here. After all, it has very good ties uh, with no uh, conditions and no uh, qualifications with Russia, as uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin announced on the eve of the invasion last February at the Beijing Olympics, but also because China has very important economic relations with the United States, with Europe, and it wants especially to continue to have those European relations flourishing, especially with Germany. And so I think it's very important as an opportunity for China to attempt to demonstrate that it can play some type of a honest broker role here. The problem is that China has been assisting Russia uh, openly and covertly over the past 12 months in terms of providing uh, sustenance for the Russian economy, purchasing uh, Russian hydrocarbons and military hardware, and also making available to the Russian economy semiconductors, chips, and ammunition and weapons parts so that they're not selling the kinds of uh, equipment that would automatically bring about U.S. and Western sanctions on China, but just enough below the radar to provide as much support to Russia as possible without punishing the Chinese economy. So China is in a very precarious position over here, and I think especially with the inability of the world to hold China accountable for unleashing the COVID virus on the world uh, in 2020, uh, there's a sense that uh, China is not a country to be trusted. And John, on that note, it seems one of the questions coming up is why isn't the U.S. or even Europe taking the lead and trying to broker the peace talks? Why, why does it seem China's the one doing that? It's a great question. And for the most part, in the United States and in many, although I won't say all European capitals, there's still a sense that Ukraine, given enough munitions, given enough military aid, given enough financial support for its devastated economy, can somehow not only continue this war with Russia indefinitely, uh, to use the president's words from this, uh, several days ago, whatever it takes, although we don't know what it means, um, that somehow Russia can actually brought to heal. And, and I'm concerned that we're entering a very dangerous period in the Russia-Ukraine war because we don't know to what extent Vladimir Putin, who surprised most people in the West and maybe around the world with the initial invasion and the scale of the invasion in February of last year, might not surprise the world again by actually detonating a low-yield tactical nuclear weapon if he feels that the U.S. and Europe are providing the kinds of armaments to Ukraine that are crossing a red line and potentially can strike targets deep inside of Russia. 
And John, earlier you mentioned China's support for Russia, either covertly or overtly. And it seems, you know, right now there's an article out from Der Spiegel, German newspaper, mm -hmm. saying that China could be sending combat drones to Russia maybe as soon as April. And recently the U.S. is warning China that if they do send lethal aid to Russia, there will be consequences. What would those consequences look like? That's going to be an enormous challenge for the White House. First of all, if the reports are true, and I have no way of knowing at this early stage whether or not the Der Spiegel report is accurate. But it's not necessarily surprising. And I think if you see and hear the statements emanating from Beijing, including in recent days, but even going um, as, as recently as the October 22 uh, Party Congress, where Xi Jinping uh, spoke about the importance of Chinese foreign policy as part of the larger rejuvenation strategy. I think what you're seeing here in China is, first of all, very strong concern that the U.S. and the West are, quote unquote, telling China or instructing China, which sees itself as a world class power, to not meddle in the Ukrainian war and to remain neutral if, if they won't actually support Ukraine, at least don't support Russia. But I think also uh, China is looking to see what is happening in Ukraine in the context of what may be happening in Taiwan. But I think the Chinese position is pretty straightforward. It's the U.S. and NATO that are sending weapons into Ukraine that are sustaining and escalating the war, why doesn't China have the right to do so if it decides it's, it's, it's uh, in its national interest to do so? But on the other hand, the Chinese economy is somewhat wobbly still with the sudden end to the COVID lockdown policy, the zero COVID policy. And I think that uh, Chinese Communist Party leaders, however maligned their overall intentions may be, are smart enough to understand that they don't want the Chinese economy to suffer under the kind of sanctions regime that the U.S. and Europe have imposed on Russia and on Russian entities and Russian business executives and the like. Then we have leverage by Beijing on the United States, because if there are counter sanctions on the U.S. economy, which is still extraordinarily dependent on the Chinese economy, not only for regular consumer goods, but also for pharmaceuticals, for critical minerals, for a whole host of issues that would be extraordinarily deleterious to the American economy if the Chinese were to cut those off. You see where there's a very interesting game of cat and mouse being played at a strategic level. And I think the best way forward is for every leader to understand how to pursue their best national interests without escalating an already dangerous situation to the point where people are talking seriously about the possibility of a world war in a way that we simply haven't heard anyone talking, at least not at this pace and at this level since the 1980s. And on that note, John, what would the U.S. policy or what should the U.S. policy look like going forward? We have a tremendous deficit in strategic thinking in the United States that dates back several decades now, especially during the Cold War. Let me emphasize that American strategy vis-a-vis -vis what was then the Soviet Union was first and foremost to not escalate any potential proxy war into a nuclear exchange, right? To prevent a nuclear war from taking place. At the same time, let me also emphasize that American strategy was always to make sure that China and the Soviet Union, and today that would translate into China and Russia, are not closer to each other than the U.S. is with either one. Now, that's going to be a problem that is really more of Beijing's making as it pertains to China. There's really no 
visible, understandable way to see how the U.S. and China become closer partners now that this great power rivalry has been unleashed with the rise of Xi Jinping over the last 10 years in China. But the U.S. should be thinking about long-term ways to ensure that Russia is not closer to China than it is to the United States and to the West, but somehow to figure out a way to peel Russia back from what's becoming its increasing dependence on China, as you note, as China's junior partner, in a way that's only going to be harmful to Russian national interests down the road. Now, a lot of this may sound like wishful thinking, because right now we're still dealing with a murderous Vladimir Putin and a horrific invasion of Ukraine and, and a war of attrition that is killing hundreds of thousands of innocent Ukrainian citizens, and for that matter, Russian and Ukrainian soldiers on both sides of the trenches. But we have to think strategically, even as we're dealing with this war today, tomorrow, and next month, and the long-term consequences of errors today could set back American global leadership for the remainder of the century. So we need to be able to not just walk and chew gum at the same time, but to carve out a grand strategy for the future of this century, even as we look to see how we uphold sovereignty and territorial integrity in countries such as Ukraine and potentially in Taiwan in the next several years. Well, John Satellites, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for letting me share my insights with you. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.